The StoryCast is supported by you every time you click on our Amazon banner and shop. So head over to StoryCastPodcast.com and click or bookmark our Amazon ad. And we get a kickback on every order you make every time. Simple as that. Thanks. Plenty of people give up. Sure we do. We give up on a whole litany of things, from projects and people to love and even life itself. For as much as we are a populace of go-getting, self-starting, bootstrap, puller-uppers who stop at nothing to weather the storm and see our dreams through to fruition, there's plenty of giving up that we do too. Recent statistics show that 53% of marriages will end in divorce. Less than two-thirds of college students will graduate, and 30% of those drop out in their first year. A striking 2% of all children born in the U.S. are given up for foster care or adoption. Only half of all businesses make it in the first five years, and 96% will fold in the first 10 years. One out of 100 people will go bankrupt, and that includes 70% of big lottery winners who eventually go broke. And the ultimate giving up? Each year, more than 42,000 Americans die from suicide, and 25 times more people attempt. To give up incites a negative connotation, that if we'd have just stuck to it, tried harder, and not folded early, we'd still be at it, whatever it is. Or even better, we'd have reached the top of the mountain, finally struck gold, we'd clinch our fists in the air in a moment of success that only pays off after a long, arduous, disciplined job well done. But then there are things that we ought to give up on. And those things are everywhere. Things that weigh us down. Things so far out of our wheelhouse that they'd only chew us up and spit us out. And we're better off just to give up, move on. Yet finally, there are a tiny sliver of things we're supposed to give up on. But probably shouldn't. And don't have to. And don't want to. And fight clawing and screaming all the way to the finish line. And in the end, we win because we stuck with it, because we conquered our challenge. And those experiences, those are the ones that define us because they teach us who we are, what we're made of, and what we can do next. And those treacherous, life-giving, lesson-teaching things, those are the things that really matter. This time on the StoryCast, never give up, never surrender. Maybe it was the 13. Maybe it was just dumb luck. But either way, in 1970, in an instant, the Apollo 13 spacecraft pivoted from a moon-bound landing into a crippled vessel. While the space flight still stands today as a demonstration of NASA innovation saving lives on the fly, Apollo 13 vividly illustrated the dangers of people working in space. First-time flyer Jack Swigert, 38, was initially the backup command module pilot. 
He joined the crew officially just 48 hours before the launch on April 11, 1970, after Prime crew member Ken Mattingly was unwittingly exposed to the German measles. Since Mattingly had no immunity, NASA doctors yanked him from the mission over Commander Jim Lovell's protests. Lovell, 42, was the world's most traveled astronaut. He had three missions and over 572 spaceflight hours of experience. Lovell participated in Apollo 8, the first mission to circle the moon, and flew two Gemini missions, including a 14-day endurance run. Rounding out the crew was Fred Hayes, 36, who was previously a backup crew member on Apollo 8 and 11. The entire crew had test flight experience before they became astronauts, meaning they were used to dealing with in-flight problems. That experience would come in handy on Apollo 13. The Apollo spacecraft was made up of two independent spacecraft joined by a tunnel, the orbiter, Odyssey, and the lander, Aquarius. The crew lived in Odyssey on the journey to the moon. On the evening of April 13th, when the crew was 200,000 miles from Earth and closing in on the moon, mission controller Cy Liebergott saw a low-pressure warning signal on a hydrogen tank in Odyssey. The signal could have shown a problem, or could have indicated the hydrogen just needed to be resettled by heating and fanning the gas inside the tank. Swigert flipped the switch for the routine procedure. A moment later, the entire spacecraft shuddered around the startled crew. Alarm lights lit up in Odyssey and in Mission Control as oxygen pressure fell and power disappeared. The crew notified Mission Control with Swigert famously uttering, Houston, we've had a problem. Much later, a NASA Accident Investigation Board determined wires were exposed in the oxygen tank through a combination of manufacturing and testing errors before flight. That fateful night, a spark from the exposed wire in the oxygen tank caused a fire, ripping one oxygen tank apart and damaging another inside the spacecraft. Since oxygen fed Odyssey's fuel cells, power was reduced as well. The spacecraft's altitude control thrusters, sensing the venting oxygen, tried to stabilize the spacecraft through firing small jets. The system wasn't very successful, given several of the jets were slammed shut by the explosion. Luckily for Apollo 13, the damaged Odyssey had a healthy backup, Aquarius, which wasn't supposed to be turned on until the crew was close to landing on the moon. It didn't have a heat shield to survive the trip back down to Earth, but it could keep the crew alive just long enough to get there. Then, the astronauts could switch to Odyssey for the rest of the trip home. Hayes and Lovell frantically worked to boot Aquarius up in less time than design, and Swigert remained in Odyssey to shut down its systems to keep power for splashdown. The crew now had to balance the challenge of getting home with the challenge of preserving power on Aquarius. After they performed a crucial burn to point the spacecraft back towards Earth, the crew powered down every non-essential system in the spacecraft. Without a source of heat, cabin temperatures quickly dropped down close to freezing. Food became inedible. The crew also had to ration water to make sure that Aquarius, operating for way longer than design, would have enough liquid to cool its hardware down. Back on Earth, Flight Director Gene Krantz pulled his shift of controllers off of regular rotation to focus on managing consumables like water and power. Other mission control teams helped the crew with daily activities. Spacecraft manufacturers worked around the clock to support NASA and the crew. It was a long few days back home. The entire crew lost weight and Hayes developed a kidney infection. In the hours before splashdown, the now exhausted crew powered up Odyssey, which had essentially been in a cold soak for days and it could have shorted out if they were unlucky. Then they prepared for splashdown, not knowing if the explosion had damaged the heat shield. Lovell, Hayes, and Swigert returned safely to the Pacific Ocean on April 17th. The spacecraft design would be reconfigured with better wires and an extra tank, and subsequent missions did not face the same problem. 
Although Apollo 13's design problems left a mark on NASA's reputation, today it also stands as a shining example of how NASA solved a life-threatening problem in space. And a crew of three floating in space who never gave up. And an army of Earthlings who never gave up on those men. And the many minds, hearts, and spirits that chose to surrender nothing but the idea of failure against all odds and science and will until that final splashdown on the 17th of April, 1970, on a cloudy but pleasant evening in the South Pacific. And then, some people quit, but just so they don't have to give up. Adrian Cardenas retired very early from the very American pastime of baseball to rediscover his very own American dream. Here's the story in his own words. After Mariano Rivera, unarguably the greatest closer in baseball history, announced in March of 2013 that this season would be his last, a fanfare accompanied his arrival at every stadium, a season-long celebration of Rivera's retirement. It would be correct to say that I also retired from baseball, but it seems pretentious and unmerited. I quit. I was only 24 healthy and strong, and earning lots of money as a Chicago Cubs rookie pinch hitter with a decent chance of becoming an everyday starter. When I was 18 in 2006, I decided to bypass my college offers and play baseball professionally. I had narrowed my choices to Stanford and Florida, but the Philadelphia Phillies selected me in the first round of the draft and gave me nearly a million dollars to join their organization and start working my way to the majors. I spent six years playing minor league ball in Florida, Texas, California, New Jersey, and Iowa. I was picked for the All-Star Futures game, which showcases the best minor leaguers. One year I was even rated as the best second baseman in the minor leagues. I made my major league debut with the Cubs on May 7, 2012 as a pinch hitter in the eighth inning of a home game against the Atlanta Braves. I stepped up to the plate with a mixed serum of emotions that every first-timer feels, happy that I had arrived at a place so hard to reach astounded that I was now playing with the players I had idolized and determined to keep getting better so that I could take their jobs. I was proud to be standing at the plate in front of so many people. The adrenaline alone made me feel weightless. During my first year in the majors, I was sent twice back down to the minors. This is common for rookies, especially if their competition for a roster spot is doing well. And I was playing behind Darwin Barney, who was chasing the record for the most consecutive games at second base without an error. A team can only keep 25 players on the active roster, but these demotions only fueled my determination to succeed, and on July 31, 2012, my first game back in the majors, I was asked to pinch hit against the Pirates' A.J. Burnett, who had pitched seven innings and two-thirds without giving up a hit. At the time, I didn't know that the Cubs hadn't given up a no-hitter since Sandy Koufax pitched the perfect game against them on September 9, 1965. I didn't know that this was very much the same year that Koufax refused to pitch the first game of the World Series because it fell on Yom Kippur. I didn't even know that the Dodgers had originally played in Brooklyn. But there I was, 47 years later, standing at the plate with two outs in the bottom of the eighth, trying to preserve a streak I knew nothing about. In moments like these, it's true that a batter doesn't really feel or hear anything. You master the ability to lose yourself in the game because that's what you need to do, not to be conscious of being conscious. I needed to go back and watch the video clip from that night at Wrigley Field to learn that I watched the first five pitches go by without swinging. The sixth one was a fastball, 
that I lined over the second baseman into right field. I didn't need a video clip to remember the sound of 45,000 fans up on their feet clapping and screaming, vocalizing the excitement that I had to repress as I ran up the first baseline. I had to act like I had done it before. After I made it to the major leagues, I would often recall my years in the minors warmly. The 12-hour bus ride spent trying to fall asleep on a foam egg crate on the floor, only to be thwarted by the bus breaking down and once catching fire, or by the aspiring singer-rapper guitarist who thought it best to practice while others slept, or worst of all, by the thick stream of dip juice from a failed attempt at spitting into the garbage. But my teammates weren't the only reason I couldn't fall asleep. Sometimes I stayed awake because I liked the sounds of the tires rolling as the driver steered at questionable speeds through California, Oregon, Nevada, Kentucky, Nebraska, the whole country really. I liked the feeling that came to me in the middle of the night, a haughty confidence that the players on this bus, my brothers and me, were the only people awake in the world. When you lose yourself in the game as you must, it's all too easy to lose your sense of home. It didn't take long for me to see how it happens. As I became friends with the players and heard about the relationships and marriages that broke up, the relatives and close friends who faded from view, the parents or grandparents whose funerals were missed because of an unexpected call-up to the majors, sometimes I'd stay awake through the night, almost laughing to myself, mentally weighing the small fraction of success against the overshadowing personal and professional failure that comes with being a ball player. I came to realize that professional baseball players are masochists. Hitters stand 60 feet and 6 inches from the mound, waiting to get hit by a pitcher's bullets. Fielders get sucker punched in the face by bad hops and then ask for a hundred more. We all fail far more than we succeed, humiliating ourselves in front of tens of thousands of fans, trying to attain the unattainable, batting a thousand, pitching without ever losing, secretly seeking the immortality of the record books. In spite of the torments, the career-ending injuries, the demotions, we keep rolling our baseball-shaped boulders up the impossible hill of the game, knowing we'll never reach the top. Baseball is visceral, tragic, and absurd. With only fleeting moments of happiness, it may be the best representation of life. I was, and still am, in love with baseball. But I quit. I quit after trying to balance my life as a professional baseball player with my life as a student during the last three years of my career. In the spring and summer, I played ball. In the fall, I studied creative writing and philosophy at New York University. But with every semester of the past, I loved school more than I loved baseball. And eventually, I knew I had to choose one over the other. As I submerged myself into an academic environment, I thought often of my parents, who knew nothing about baseball, but raised me with a passion for music and language so great that sports seemed irrelevant by comparison. I quit because baseball was sacred to me until I started getting paid for it. The more that baseball became synonymous with business, the less it meant to me, and I saw less of myself in the game every time I got a check from the Philadelphia Phillies organization, the Oakland Athletic Company, or the Chicago Cubs LLC. To put it simply, other players were much better than I was at separating the game of baseball from the job of baseball. They could enjoy the thrill of a win as it should be enjoyed without thinking of what it meant to the owner's bottom lines. These players, at once the objects of my envy and my admiration, are the resilient ones still in the game. I am no longer one of them. Of course, I have regrets. The irony of the business of baseball is that the business has a seriousness that the game lacks. 
The fortune of a billion dollar company rests on the shoulders of 25 players competing to hold their spots on the roster. And an enormous pride comes with being one of those players. Now that I've quit, I will never again find myself in a position where the stakes are so high and I'm held accountable. I miss that the most. But quitting for me was still the right move. A few days into the start of this season, my friend Anthony Rizzo, who plays first base for the Cubs, called me to say that he had told A.J. Burnett that the rookie who broke up his no-hitter had retired. Burnett replied, half-joking, I wish the kid had retired one year earlier. Sometimes I wish the same thing. For whatever reason, I was never the sort of player who could enjoy a game, a play, or a hit before moving on to prepare for the next one. It was only after I quit that I wished I hadn't always kept my head down, relentlessly climbing to reach the top of the game, to fulfill an American dream. I wish I had looked up more often, even at the cost of some of my success. The American dream didn't tell me that an experience only matters if I acknowledge it, that losing yourself in the game is a good way to lose what makes life meaningful. When you're standing at the plate, and you hit a sharp foul ball to the backstop, the spot on the bat that makes contact gets hot. The American dream forgot to tell me to step back and enjoy the smell of burnt wood. Slow and steady, it usually wins the race, even when backed into a corner and faced against all odds. If we give up, we might not ever know what we might have accomplished or how it may all unfold with a little determination, wit, and some good old-fashioned blood, sweat, and tears. But don't take it from me. Take it from Aesop, as in Aesop's fables. Or rather, take it from award-winning storyteller Jim Weiss. This is the tortoise and the hare, as you may not have heard it before. This is Aesop's famous tale, The Tortoise and the hare. Long ago, in the little neighborhood of animals, there lived a tortoise, and there lived a hare. And although they were neighbors, and they lived quite near to each other, they were just about as different as could be, in a number of ways. Uh, for example, the tortoise was really he moved really slowly and he even talked really slowly just like This. But on the other hand, there was a hare, and there was nothing slow about him. He was speedy. He was rapid. He was here. He was there. He was a hare in that kind of a hare. He he go out, run over to the public library, check out three books, read them cover to cover, zoom, 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 zoom. He was always on the run, always on the move, always fast. But the tortoise was slow. And whenever the two of them encountered one another in the neighborhood, the fast-moving hare would tease the tortoise for being so slow. He would actually laugh at him. This is how he laughed. <coughs> he even laughed fast. 
And the hare would say such rude things. Uh, say, you know what, tortoise? You are really slow and I am really fast. You know what, tortoise? I could run circles around you. Circles nothing. Uh, I could run right under you and you wouldn't even know it because you cannot move your head fast enough to see me. <laughs> the tortoise finally got a word in edgewise and he said, Oh. Yeah? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because everyone knows hares are fast and tortoises are slow. I would love to see you moving your fastest. Maybe you are moving your fastest right now. You are standing still. <laughs> now, if you stop and think about it just for a moment, you'll realize that the hare was teasing the tortoise about something the tortoise could not control. I mean, he could not move any faster than that. So it wasn't very nice to tease him about it. Plus, I should tell you that the tortoise didn't even really care to move faster. He was very happy just as he was. Still, and I don't think this will surprise you, after a while, all that teasing really began to bother the tortoise. One day he just had enough. The hare just kept after him and after him. He said, hey, you know it really would be funny? You know what would make me laugh? You know what I would find amusing? I would love to see you, a slow motion tortoise, trying to run in a race. That would be so funny to see. And to his surprise, the tortoise looked the hare right in the eye and he replied, I'm tired of your rudeness, hare. I challenge you to a race. You? You win a race against me? All right, if it's a race you want, it's a race you shall have. Two o'clock tomorrow, right here. You, a tortoise, I, a hare, we will run a race. Well, word of the race quickly spread through the neighborhood, and all the animals decided that they wanted to go and watch the race. Now, of course, they figured they knew how it was going to end, since the tortoise was so slow and the hare was so fast, but the other animals wanted to make sure that at least it began in a fair way. So they insisted someone besides the hare or the tortoise should set the two of them off on their race, saying, on your marks, get set, go. The big brown bear who lived in a cave up on the hill volunteered to do that. So next day, when the time for the race came along, the bear stood up on his big back legs, raised up a big brown furry paw and said, runners, on your marks. And the hare said, what do you mean runners? I am the only runner in this race. Tortoise is too slow to call him a runner, he's a walker. In fact, tortoise is so slow you cannot even call him a walker. Tortoise is a stander still. <laughs> then the bear raised up that big paw a little higher still and he said, get set, go. The instant the bear said go, the hare just took off at unbelievable speed like he'd been shot out of a slingshot or something. In mere moments he was out of sight up the road. All you could see was a cloud of dust following along that dusty road as he zoomed away. The tortoise, he wasn't fast like the hare. This is how he started off the race. When the bear said, on your marks, the tortoise was on his mark also. He was there at the starting line. When the bear said, get set, the tortoise was set. And he may have been slow moving, but he was determined to give this race all that he had. So here is how the tortoise sprang into action when at last the big brown bear said, Go! Well, well, I got one foot working. Better put it down and start on another one. 
I've never ran this fast before. Greased lightning! Well, as he was just starting to move along the road, the hare was zooming along. But five minutes later, as he was running, the hare said to himself, Hey, why am I running my fastest and knocking myself out when I'm racing against the tortoise? I'm already halfway to the finish line. He has probably only taken five or six steps. And to see if he was correct, the hare came to a screeching halt, and he turned around and looked back along the road he'd been running on. I can't even see the tortoise yet. That's how far behind he is. Gee, I wonder how much of a head start I have over him. Um, think I'll run up on this big green grassy hill over here and see if I can see where the tortoise is from up there. Up he ran quickly, the way he did everything quickly. And when he got to the top of the hill, he looked back along the road again and said, Ha! Even from up here, I can't see the tortoise yet. That's how far behind he is. That's how far ahead I am. I got all day to win this race. Oh, but I've been running so hard, and I... I climbed this hill, too. Since I got all this time anyway, I think I'll just sit down here in the grass for a moment and just kind of catch my breath. <sighs> but the grass beneath him was soft and deep, and the sunlight all around him on that summer day was warm and relaxing. And before you know it, the hare got a little too comfortable up on that hilltop. The hare fell asleep. He fell asleep in the deep green grass, snoring. But while he was snoozing on the hilltop, old Mr. Tortoise kept moving along that road. Slow step after slow step. The only kind he could take, of course. The hare had reached the hill in about five minutes. The tortoise, well, it took him nearly half an hour to get there. But unlike the hare, he didn't stop for anything. He just kept going. And about half an hour after that, suddenly, a loud noise woke the hare from his sleep. He leaped to his feet atop the hill. He said, huh? Eh, what? What's going on? I, I must have fallen asleep. And I hear a noise. What is that? That sounds like people are cheering and clapping. Hey, I wonder what that means. Well, being up on that hill, he could see a long way, and he turned and he said, oh, I see what it means. I see the tortoise. He is nearly to the finish line of the race. He must have kept going while I was asleep up here. What woke me up is that all the other animals waiting for him at the finish line are cheering him on. I cannot lose a race to a slow-moving tortoise. I got to catch up and win this thing. And determined to do that, he came shooting down off that hill, moving faster than he'd ever moved in his whole fast-moving life. But the hare had been too sure of himself. He had waited too long. Before he could get there, old Mr. Tortoise slowly picked his foot up one more time, slowly set it down one more time, and it was the tortoise not the hare, that crossed the finish line first. The other animals were cheering wildly while they picked him up on their shoulders They carried him around in a victory parade, crying out, Hooray for the tortoise! He has won the race! As the hare puffed across the line, in last place, all out of breath, <laughs> and very embarrassed at losing to a tortoise. And the tortoise looked down from atop the shoulders of the other animals and just said to him, well, Hare, let that be a lesson to you. Slow and steady wins the race. 
So that, that is Aesop's world-famous tale of the great race between the tortoise and the hare. And now that you know one of Aesop's stories, go find the rest. Thank you. The StoryCast will be back in two more weeks with more eclectic stories wrapped in an intriguing theme.